The world is wrong. Hello, Drudgeheads, and welcome back to the Drudgecast. I hope you had a really fantastic Halloween, Samhain, spiritual, witchy, spooky time. I hope you had a really good time, whatever you were up to. And this week, I'm just going to crack on and get straight into it because we've got a lot to cover this week. We've got, in fact, everything to cover because this is episode E, and E this week is for everything. That's right. This week, we're going to cram everything into about an hour's worth of Drodgecast. You ready? Something I've been musing on a lot recently since starting this podcast is the idea that within our world, whether by that you mean human society or life on planet Earth as a whole, there are so many worlds within that world, all of which are competing to be the definitive world. I know that if you're listening to this podcast, you may, like me, be actively questioning your gender. And that may be a challenging, difficult experience, whether simply in your own heart and mind or in your everyday environment with people around you giving you a hard time or simply not validating your experience of your own life. And what I'd say to you is what I'd say to anyone questioning their gender. Who doesn't feel valued enough as they are. Perhaps you feel your sense of yourself doesn't matter because others are telling you that you are something other than what you say you are, what you feel yourself to be. Do you want to live in their world or do you want to live in yours? Do you want to live in a world that permits and celebrates your existence or do you want to live in a world that rejects and ridicules it? With that in mind, I want to talk about the multiverse theory. Because on the one hand, it's a really fascinating batshit concept that I'm really excited to explore. And on the other hand, I feel that the theory of gender is very much like the multiverse theory. So that's what we'll be looking at this week. We will also be looking into the exceptionally exquisite film, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. That's what's coming up. Now, I have a sense that this is going to be a very psychedelic feeling episode in the sense that the kind of things we're going to be talking about will often come across in very much the same way that a conversation on acid might come across or a conversation while smoking a joint what's the universe man are we all just a projection of ourselves on the back of a big spoon and one universe is in concave and one is in convex on either side of the spoon so which side of the spoon are we dude i don't know dude Maybe there's a third side to the spoon, like the back of the front, or the the, the front of the back. Isn't the back of the front just the back, and the front of the back just the front? But is the front really the back, and the back's really the front? I don't know, dude, that's crazy talk. Hey, look at my hand! You can see everything in there. All the universe is the multiverse in there. Maybe I'm the multiverse, dude. (laughs) So yeah, there's that. But I wouldn't recommend taking a tab of acid whilst listening to this episode. Because, you know, you'll probably just stare at your hand for five hours, not listen to anything I'm saying, and make toast at some point. And it will be really excellent toast. Maybe you should do that. But that's what Drodgecast on acid would be like. I don't think people really do it anymore, but it used to be really common for someone trying to sell an idea as being amazing and mad and brilliant, that it was like being on acid. So it's like EastEnders, 
but on acid. What, so two people in a front room laughing at a plant for seven hours, and then the theme music comes in, dun, 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 and you can feel it on your face. Or, as Bill Bailey puts it in his stand-up special part, Troll, TV writers, they often use acid as a kind of shorthand for whacking. They'll say something like, this sitcom, it'll be like Terry and June on acid. You imagine what that'll be like? Yeah, I can imagine what that would be like. That'd be Terry examining the floral pattern on a plate for four days. That's quite interesting. 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 Oh, look there, that forms a little circle. That's quite interesting. What do you think of that, June? That's quite interesting. That's quite interesting. No, it's rubbish. When beginning to talk about the multiverse, it is often asked, how could it be that our universe is so perfectly set up to allow life in all the forms we experience? The multiverse theory asserts that our universe is inevitable, because all possible iterations of existence exist somewhere within the multiverse. Therefore, it was not a matter of if it would happen, or some kind of divine intervention to make it happen, for our universe to exist, but simply a necessary fact of an infinite number of possibilities. Because everything is possible, every possible iteration of any universe exists, so our universe has to exist. It is hypothesized that black holes, which would have formed seconds after the Big Bang occurred, contain other universes within them. Carlo Rovelli describes a black hole in his book Seven Brief Lessons on Physics as follows. When a large star has burnt up all of its combustible substance, hydrogen, it goes out. What remains is no longer supported by the heat of the combustion and collapses under its own weight, to a point where it bends space to such a degree that it plummets into an actual hole. And because no light can escape from a black hole, we have no way of seeing inside the black hole to verify the theory that they contain other universes within them. As far as we can tell, it's just a big hole with nothing in it. In order to see inside or travel inside a black hole, we would need to see beyond the laws of physics with which we are currently familiar, which we can currently observe on Earth and in space. We would need to be able to travel faster than the speed of light, which is currently not possible. We'd need to have what would be called a quantum theory of gravity to supplement, go beyond Einstein's theory of gravity, which is the best theory we currently have, as I understand. So, in essence, we'd have to see beyond and act beyond what we currently regard as even being possible. Ravelli continues in explaining the current understanding of black holes. This hypothetical final stage in the life of the star, where the quantum fluctuations of space-time balance the weight of matter, is what is known as a Planck star. If the sun were to stop burning and to form a black hole, it would measure about one and a half kilometers in diameter. Inside this black hole, the sun's matter would continue to collapse eventually becoming such a Planck star. Its dimensions would then be similar to those of an atom. The entire matter of the sun condensed into the space of an atom. A Planck star is not stable. Once compressed to the maximum, it rebounds and begins to expand again. This leads to an explosion of the black hole. This process, as seen by a hypothetical observer sitting in the black hole on the Planck star, would be a rebound occurring at great speed. But time does not pass at the same speed for her as for those outside the black hole for the same reason that in the mountains, time passes faster than at sea level. Except that for her, because of the extreme conditions, the difference in the passage of time is enormous, and what for the observer on the star would seem an extremely rapid bounce would appear, seen from outside it, to take place over a very long time. This is why we observe black holes remaining the same for long periods of time. A black hole is a rebounding star seen in extreme slow motion. On Earth, we do not appear to experience time in this variable way, where something that takes, say, six years of Earth life, 
occurs in six seconds because of a certain set of conditions applied to a situation, in this case being the collapse of the sun and the resultant compression and extreme pressure applied within the black hole that has been created. So to understand space, black holes, other galaxies, other potential universes, the multiverse theory itself, it seems that we have to suspend belief of all that we accept as observable and true here on Earth, like gender maybe. The theory of the multiverse is the theory of gender. More on that later. One of the theories about the multiverse is that our universe collided with another, which caused the Big Bang. Imagine for a second that the multiverse is a room and our universe is like a sheet or a ball within that room. So the Big Bang happened when our universe, our sheet or ball of existence, collided with another. Now, this theory happens to coincide with the reality of how human beings are created, by which I mean with one entity colliding with another, you know, a sperm fertilizing an egg. So it seems even in our theorizing about the creation of our own universe, of how the potential for life on Earth came to be possible and to then create us, we are applying the logic of how we ourselves came into existence as we see it. We are using the way we understand ourselves to reflect our idea of how we come to understand the universe. We are putting the logic of humans into the logic of the universe, which may not be that logical. Humans, after all, are not all within the universe. They are not the definitive experience, though we may like to believe that is the case. You know, though we do basically believe ourselves to be the centre of it. For better or for worse, to be guardians of the universe. But what if our universe is parthenogenetic? Oh, don't mind if I do. So, parthenogenesis is the process of producing offspring without mating, of a virgin birth. To break down the word into its individual parts, parthenos means virgin in the Greek, and genesis means birth or creation. There is a temple from ancient Greece still standing today near modern-day Athens on what would have been the Acropolis of Athens. Acropolis means any city built on a high hill, so Edinburgh in Scotland is a modern day example of this. This temple just outside Athens is called the Parthenon, which was dedicated to the Greek goddess Athena, the so-called virgin goddess. The temple itself was constructed to house a new gold statue created in her honour, and the story of how she was supposed to have been born herself is absolutely mad. I feel like I'm going to need to do an episode, if not several, on Greek mythology because some of the stuff I've been reading about is just the queerest shit ever. Listen to this. On learning that Metis's next child may overthrow him, Zeus swallowed his first wife, who was already pregnant with Athens. When the time came, Zeus started feeling tremendous headaches. As even he couldn't bear them, Hephaestus struck him with his axe, and lo and behold, Athena leapt out of Zeus's head, fully armed and with a cry so mighty and fearsome that Uranus and Gaia were shaken to their bones with terror. Zeus was delighted and full of pride. So, Zeus swallowed his pregnant first wife and birthed Athena from inside his own head. That is so fucking queer. Athena's a fascinating figure. She was both the goddess of war and the goddess of weaving and handcrafts. I guess both require excellent finger technique. She was once challenged by a mortal, Arachne, who believed that she could weave better than even a god Athena challenged Arachne to a weaving duel. Again, queer as shit ever, it's like RuPaul's Drag Race Ancient Greece. And in this weaving duel, the two made symbolic tapestries. Athena's symbolized the fate of those who foolishly challenged the gods, 
and Arachnes depicted mortals unjustly victimised by the gods. Arachne could not finish her tapestry, however, because Athena was so enraged by her actions, her choice of subject, that she tore Arachne's tapestry to shreds and turned her into a spider, condemning her to weave forever. Vicious. Athena had no children of her own, though Hephaestus, remember the god who hit Zeus on the head with an axe causing her to be born from inside Zeus's own head? Hephaestus tried to rape Athena, but Athena fought him off and then spilled his semen all over the earth, leading the goddess Gaia to become pregnant. We need to make a limited series about Greek mythology. Now. Yesterday. I want to watch this. I guess for now I'll just have to make a podcast about it soon. So back to Parthenogenesis. A creature or entity that creates life parthenogenetically is technically a virgin. Like the Virgin Mary from the Bible. Because she created life without having sex, essentially. She birthed without insemination or without the addition of another seed that would set off the reproductive process. If you believe the Bible story, I, I mean, I don't, it's never really explained as far as I remember from school about how God went about with the with the whole thing. I, I, I don't know. They don't seem to want to give us the full details. Give us the full details. She was like, in that sense, I suppose, she was like Prince on his debut album, For You. She did it all herself. Actually, Prince and the Virgin Mary are both very similar. They both enjoy the colour purple, not the book, but maybe. Advent, the time leading up to the birth of Jesus, is synonymous with a rose purple, a wine purple. Both Prince and the Virgin Mary were big in the 80s. They both had sex with God. That is, if God's a woman, because, you know, Prince would have had sex with her. Unless Prince is God. I'm getting distracted. Parthenogenesis, the virgin birth, has been observed largely in small invertebrates, animals without a backbone, such as wasps, bees, aphids, green flies. It also happens in certain fish and lizards. These are types of animal that can reproduce asexually, reproduce without the need of a male animal of the same species. They can self-impregnate, self-reproduce. This is also present in the plant world, in flowers that self-pollinate, such as Alcamilla mollis, otherwise known as the perennial lady's mantle, which looks a little like yellowy green parsley, or this Japanese anemone, which kind of looks like a small sunflower surrounded by large bright petals, which flower from lilac to deep fuchsia, or forget-me-nots, which look like they have a tiny little sun in the middle with white rays stemming across five sea blue petals. If this phenomena, parthenogenesis, self-seeding, the self-creation of an entirely new thing without the need of a fertilizer or catalyst, if this is possible in our universe, is it possible that entire universes have been created by the same process? Was our universe created by these means? Is, is that what the Big Bang was? A sort of spontaneous self-combustion? This plays into a theory I have about human beings and why the world we have made for ourselves is the way it is. Human beings are creatures that have a finite life, right? We've got, we've got a time limit, some more than others. Unless you believe in an afterlife, afterlives, or the concept that humans are more than just their physical meat sacks, that they are spiritual bodies of energy that never die, they simply pass from one physical form to another, so from body to earth to whatever comes next. In any case, if humans do have a finite life on earth, therefore I would argue, living within that logic as we seem to do, we can only see things, create things that work in our image, that have a finite life too. Wasn't it said in the Bible that God created man in his own image? If God wasn't a woman. 
or a they or something entirely within the world of gods that we know nothing about cannot conceive because we can only see things within our own image. I mean, it's hard to, for me to believe that in the Christian religion there was a god that birthday another being out of its own head but I mean I've not read the Bible for a long time. So we make objects, buildings, tools, things that require maintenance that eventually go bad or break because we cannot or do not want to be confronted with our own mortality perhaps and our own irrelevance by creating something that can outlive and outlast us. We even see this often in our concept of deities as I mentioned a moment ago of the universe itself that it must have been created at some point, and if so, created by what? What if it created itself? If it was, is, parthenogenetic? What even is creation? Is everything really like The Truman Show? Spoilers. One small world with an edge being watched over by a film director? Is there no director, no original creator? Do we need to believe and construct such figures and ideas of a creation event or original act that sparks life because that's the way we see ourselves? Therefore we map that self-perception onto everything else? If we were sea turtles, imagine yourself as a sea turtle for a moment, and you lived for hundreds of years. Perhaps then we could create a car or a washing machine that would last for hundreds of years rather than a matter of years, because we'd be creating uh, uh, a reflection, a mirror image of ourselves. We would be seeing ourselves as the creator in the creation. If we were creatures that lived infinitely, perhaps we could create objects, things in our environment that would last forever too, because that would be logical, because that would just be following our understanding of the world. Though I guess there are sourdough starters, the most hipster reference imaginable. These can, in theory, live forever if someone keeps feeding them flour on water on a regular basis. So it is in theory possible to create something from nature that exists forever, so long as there is an environment to sustain it. And it's possible from my experience of working in a, in a, in a bakery for a year to sustain yourself forever off selling sourdough because the markup on sourdough is ridiculous. Sourdough, different to bread, which can have other things in it like bread fat and yeast, sourdough is just water and flour and then the same again to make the starter and the natural yeast from the air and a bit of salt so you, you you're spending nothing and we all know how much sourdough costs it's an insane markup you need to get into the sourdough business right now i don't know why i'm doing this podcast i need to get into the sourdough podcast making business right fucking now but even if it is possible in theory to create something that could be sustained forever that will eventually come to an end at some point because if as is hypothesized is true that the sun will eventually explode burn out in several billion years and maybe that was the big bang that we talk about which would therefore mean that the birth and end of the universe are the same thing the same point in time and that existence as we know it is a closed loop but perhaps the planet we have been created by a planet a universe, a series of universes perhaps, is potentially infinite. Could we be infinite too at some point? Therefore, even if within our universe this the sun is going to explode, maybe there are possibilities beyond that if there is an infinite stretch of available universes? I mean, it certainly doesn't seem that way sitting here as I do now in my human meat sack with a with a real awareness of, of the body clock that is ticking. It certainly doesn't seem that way, at, lost in, at least not in any physical form that we can 
continuously occupy that we could, in theory, live forever. We may be reincarnated or transfer from physical form to physical form, whether from human to squirrel or squirrel to rock, but it seems unlikely that we are going to be able to occupy the same physical form for an infinite amount of time. To be Jeff Bridges forever. Jeff Bridges, the actor from The Big Lebowski and many other films, he famously says, wonderfully says, at the start of filming each day on set, We're alive, man! We're alive, man! Though sadly, at some point, even Jeff Bridges will no longer be alive, man. But at least there will always be Keith Richards. I feel like his wife and the mother of Jack Sparrow in the Pirates of the Caribbean film. He is essentially turning into a leathery, guitar-playing, shrunken head of himself before our very own eyes. At least there'll always be Keith Richards. So it seems we are divorced from the potential logic of the universe from which we have been birthed, in the sense that it seems to keep on going and expanding and be infinite, and we are very much not. But if you look at the way the Earth recycles everything, the circle of life on Earth that is life into death into life into death into life, that we are born, die, return to the Earth, and then become part of the Earth itself, the remnants of our physical bodies become part of the Earth, become part of the ground, have immense pressure applied to us to create rocks, crystals, are endlessly reused, recycled, repurposed as part of the Earth. We are within that logic infinite. So long as the earth is infinite itself, keeps living, so long as the sun doesn't explode. So within us, though our physical lives are finite, we have the potential for the infinite. Because we exist within a cycle of life on earth, within our universe, and who knows how many others, that is, in theory, infinite. And because we are part of that, in theory, we are infinite too. I guess it depends where you draw the line about who you are, what makes you, you. Are you just your physical self, what is literal and tangible, or are you consciousness, an awareness of experiencing your own lived reality? Are, or are you all of the energy that makes up that reality? So wherever you go, when you die, you are returned to and repurposed by the earth, you are still technically alive, technically infinite. But because we can only experience things or concurrently only conceive of the finite, rather than the infinite. I feel this does influence our attitudes towards ourselves, towards gender even. We don't see the limitless, we see the limits. That person exists within this framework and so is not like that person who exists within this other framework. Is gender the finite and gender queer the infinite? Limitless possibility, a way of being that encompasses everything in the universe of gender all at once. Infinite gender. And because we ourselves, in our present human state, are conceived via one thing essentially colliding with another, through the fertilization of an ovum, an egg, by a sperm, are we therefore simply not able to conceive of something that ultimately created something all on its own, that internally combined the requisite materials for new life that is in, and of itself, a creator? Something self-contained that can spawn other versions of itself? Does the fact that human beings are not parthenogenetic Explain why we struggle so much to understand how gender is more than just a binary choice. Because there is a perceived inherent binary in the way we come to exist in the first place. Something really made me chuckle in a video by Science Time, 
looking at the multiverse theory and interviewing Professor Brian Cox to explain parts of it. The multiverse theory isn't universally accepted, Professor Cox observed. So, the theory of having multiple universes isn't universally accepted? Oh, you see, in some of the multiple universes, they don't believe in multiple universes. The multiverse theory? Nah, that's just a load of bollocks. They believe in all those other universes, isn't it? But according to the very logic of the multiverse theory itself, the theory of the multiverse theory must be accepted somewhere in the multiverse, right? And presumably, there is a place in the multiverse where I'm not a smart-ass git. In theory, you'd have to look through a lot of them. And in theory, that means that if all possible universes exist, according to the multiverse theory, because that is a necessary fact for our universe to be as perfectly set up for us existing in the first place as it is, does that mean that there are universes where LGBTQI plus people are entirely loved and accepted and valued by everybody? That being different isn't seen as being inherently wrong or threatening? That gender is accepted as being broadly interpretable? That you can either see it as being a fixed binary thing, or you can see it as being a fluid, evolving thing of infinite possibilities? Yes, according to the multiverse theory, that universe must exist somewhere, sometime, somehow. What a lovely thought. In episode B is for Brains, I revealed the unlikely story for a long time science phobe that I had been reading into quantum physics. Now I'm reading into the multiverse, quarks, string theory, my younger verse, my, my younger self. <laughs> no, younger verse is better actually, I like younger verse. The, 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 the universe I lived in when I, when I was younger, when I was younger. How, how, how was your younger verse? Did you have a good younger verse? Did you have a, um, what did you learn in your younger verse? My younger self would be proud of me, yet also at the same time incredibly appalled and disturbed that I was reading into quantum physics and the multiverse theory. Maybe not the multiverse theory, that's kind of a very child-friendly idea, I think. You know, all of these possibilities. Younger verse. My stepdad is a scientist, a computer scientist, and is currently doing a course in the philosophy of science. So we've been having some interesting chats when we talk about the nature of things, how you can observe and analyse big, ineffable things like the universe, time, what we are as humans. He recommended, as I, as I was looking into quantum physics, reading the work of Carlo Rovelli, who I've quoted a couple of times earlier in this episode, and that I should start with the book that he wrote, Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. So, to expand on what we've been talking about in this podcast series so far, when things like quantum physics, Einstein's theory of relativity, how that relates to time and how time is this complicated, non-linear thing, not quite how we perceive it in our everyday. And thinking about that all in relation to gender as something that is not necessarily fixed, linear. Listen to this passage from Rivelli's book. Einstein had been fascinated by this electromagnetic field which turned the rotors in the power stations built by his father. And he soon came to understand that gravity, like electricity, must be conveyed by a field as well. A gravitational field, analogous to the electrical field, must exist. He aimed at understanding how this gravitational field worked and how it could be described with equations. And it is at this point that an extraordinary idea occurred to him, a stroke of pure genius. The gravitational field is not diffused through space. The gravitational field is that space itself. This is the idea of the theory of general relativity. Newton's space, through which things move, and the gravitational field are one and the same thing. 
It's a moment of enlightenment, a momentous simplification of the world. Space is no longer something distinct from matter, it is one of the material components of the world, an entity that undulates, flexes, curves, twists. We are not contained within an invisible rigid infrastructure, we are immersed in a gigantic, flexible snail shell. The sun bends space around itself, and the earth does not turn around it because of a mysterious force, but because it is racing directly in a space which inclines, like a marble that rolls in a funnel. There are no mysterious forces generated at the center of the funnel. It is the curved nature of the walls which causes the marble to roll. Planets circle around the sun, and things fall because space curves. So space is not a place, a location as such. It is itself a force, an energy, and we exist within that. And I love that, because I think, in many ways, gender is a bit like that. A gigantic, flexible snail shell, sort of curling, whirling, spiralling into the never-ending essence of what it is. And everything is linked. If you remember back to school science lessons and that chart on the wall, the periodic table, the seemingly random selections of many, many elements, all the elements from which our universe is made are on that periodic table and they all fit into one single equation. The man who pioneered this truth was a German scientist by the name of Werner Heisenberg, which will be interesting for fans of Breaking Bad to know if you didn't already know that. Carlo Rovelli writes again, Heisenberg imagined that electrons do not always exist. They only exist when someone or something watches them, or better, when they are interacting with something else. They materialize in a place with a calculable probability when colliding with something else. The quantum leaps from one orbit to another are the only means they have of being real. An electron is a set of jumps from one interaction to another. When nothing disturbs it, it is not in any precise place. It is not in a place at all. It's as if God had not designed reality with a line that was heavily scored, but just dotted it with a faint outline. Or perhaps it was a heavy pencil. Applying this to the multiverse theory, you could argue then that any probable universe is possible, so long as someone is watching or interacting with that probability somewhere. Say, a universe where you have a nose made of gold. Would everything you smelled then smell of gold? Would your snot be like little gold nuggets? This would have drastic ramifications for the price of gold. Maybe that's what happens every time there's a financial crash. Someone in the universe with a nose made of gold is just sneezing out gold nugget after gold nugget and sending the stock market into a tailspin. A nose spin. Speaking of finding things up your nose, I was in Brighton recently with my friend Danny and I was talking with her about the multiverse theory. And at one point in the conversation, as I was eating a wrap from Subway after we'd forgotten our IDs and had to walk a good 40 minutes back to her house to get them, I found a piece of string up my nose. It fell into my hand and I looked at it in confusion and said to Danny, this piece of string just came out of my nose. To which Danny replied, maybe we've jumped into a different multiverse. And later on, when we were sitting at the bus stop waiting to get the bus back into town after we got our IDs, I remember that there's a theory about how the universe is comprised and it's called string theory. Essentially, everything is bound together, not by floating particles of energy, this theory asserts but interlinked strings. It's a much maligned, debated theory by this point, but still holds a lot of scientific weight and potential. There's one key missing component, as I understand, that needs to be figured out to do with gravity, and then we're away, we're golden, we're string. And I mentioned this with a kind of 
devilish chuckle to Danny, and she practically ran away at the idea. So the string fell out my nose. The basic potential makeup for the universe fell out of my nose as we were talking about the multiverse theory. I might as well have said to Danny, Ah, oh, Danny, I'm pulling the universe out of my nose. Now, talking about the multiverse theory as we're doing this week, you delve into it enough and you're going to come across some figures, some videos on channels like Joe Rogan, Russell Brand's channel, maybe even on Alex Jones, when you start to look into things that are essentially saying nothing is real, everything is an illusion, it's all made up, which I'm all on board for, right? And I came across a video on the Joe Rogan podcast, which I listened to for a bit, and I think there's some interesting people he gets on there. Most of it, I'm not really interested, I can kind of take it or leave it. The guy that he was interviewing on this video I saw was Paul Stamets, who's a mycologist, who a mycologist is, is, is concerned with the study of fungi, with mushrooms, basically. And Paul Stamets said, we have to accept that reality is not limited to the perception we have traditionally used. And he shared a story of taking mushrooms, psilobinic mushrooms, in 1975. And while he was on mushrooms, he had this vision. He had this vision that this cabin that he had near a river, upstate, was gonna be flooded, and all of his papers were gonna be destroyed, and there were gonna be dead cattle everywhere. And in the coming days, his vision was proved right. He had to rush up to the cabin to try and save all of his possessions, all of his papers that he kept up there. Wasn't able to make it out because of the level of flooding, and had to stay there for a couple of days. And then when he came back to civilization, when he was driving back, he saw the fields full of dead cattle who had been killed by the flooding. So how did he know? Was it the mushrooms or some kind of other, other plane of consciousness? Or did he access that plane of consciousness by the mushrooms, through the mushrooms? And coming back again to what he said, he's asking us to do, we have to accept that reality is not limited to the perception we have traditionally used. And I think that's a very powerful thing to consider. And in many ways, it's very hard to get beyond that perception because that perception, where else does it come from but from us? And what I find really interesting and perplexing is, well, it's perplexing, but it does make sense, of course, you know, how our theories of reality often so closely mirror us that the creation matches the creator. String theory is actually a very soothing way, soothing idea in a way, because it returns us to an almost fetal state, doesn't it? You know, this, this sense of all these interconnected strings, wires, whatever they are, linking us all together like big umbilical cords. You know, that we're, we're, we are attached by one giant, multiple giant umbilical cords to the universe itself, however that could manifest itself. And we can't see it. So we kind of devise an idea of what we can't see through what we can see. And maybe it's like string theory, that scene from the Ashes to Ashes video of Major Tom hanging from his fallen spaceship, multiple wires and cords protruding from his suspended ashen-faced form. And what if the theory of how the universe is actually comprised, whether string theory or otherwise, how it actually works, Science seems aligned with what Carlo Rovelli says here. Quantum mechanics and experiments with particles have taught us that the world is a continuous, restless swarming of things. A continuous coming to light and disappearance of ephemeral entities. A set of vibrations 
as in the switched-on hippie world of the 1960s. A world of happenings, not of things. This podcast is supported via Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash drodge, that's D-R-O-D-G-E, you can find out more about the podcast, how to get involved, set up a monthly donation, and become part of this weird and wonderful community around gender. And for our listeners from other universes, you can get involved too. But please be warned, multiverse roaming charges may apply. Now, it's time for the gender lewd. The pause in the show where you may hear some people trying to sell you some stuff. I'm going to ease you into that, soothe you into that with some noise, with some space. So enjoy, take a pause, take a bathroom break. If you're in a version of the multiverse where you need to go or are physically capable of relieving yourself, maybe you exist in a universe where bathrooms don't exist. You just think, oh, I need to waste and it's gone. What a lovely thought. Take a break, if you like, if you can. And see you in a few. Now, when we're thinking about gender, gender theory, the concept of the truth comes up a lot. I would argue that the truth doesn't exist. The truth from where? Many anti-LGBTQI plus figures, or pro-straight figures, queer skeptics, queer deniers, gender realists, the people in the universe where gender is strictly binary, however they prefer to identify, they are obsessed with the truth of gender and sex, what is objectively observable as true about these things. And they rail against anyone who uses the term, my truth. What do you mean, my truth? There is and can only be one truth. Oh yeah? And who gets to decide what is the ultimate one truth? I do. I am a truth-sayer. Are you? And who gave you that one then? Well, I see gender as it is, male and female, and that's it. Okay, great. That's your truth, and you're welcome to it. It's not my truth, it's the truth. People used to think smoking was good for you. Yes, but that was never really the truth. That was just a delusion, a myth peddled by the tobacco industry to sell cigarettes. Yes, true, but it was the truth for the people who bought those cigarettes at the time. Your point being? It was their truth at the time. What does this have to do with gender? Well, it shows that truth is contextual. That what we regard as true relies on what people can accept and go along with. They used to drill holes in people's heads because they believed it relieved head tension. The difference here being, having a fluid idea of gender is not going to give me lung cancer or a hole in the head. You'll get gender cancer. If that's your truth, you're welcome to it. You can't have truth. It just is. As we know from last week, D is for doublespeak. Words themselves can contain multiple, often entirely contradictory, truths. That's why you can be a lesbian, but not be someone who likes women. You can be a straight lesbian, because you are a straight person from the Greek island of Lesbos. Or maybe a straight lesbian is someone who is what most people these days would regard as a lesbian, an old school lesbian, someone who likes women. And a non-straight lesbian is someone from Lesbos, because this could go on forever. The truth is, I would argue, There is no such thing as the truth. It's multiple versions of reality competing for dominance. What's true in the state of Georgia in the US is not true for Georgia, the country in Eastern Europe. What's true of 43 West Street is not necessarily true at 44 West Street. The multiverse theory, I think, is a perfect way to illustrate this. 
When thinking again about quantum physics, quantum mechanics, this was something that Einstein really struggled with when his theory of relativity and all the work he'd done to reach that universe-shattering truth was expanded upon by other scientists. The idea that particles would effectively lie dormant, be pure potential, until something observed or interacted with them, went against his thinking. As Carlo Rovelli writes, Einstein did not want to relent on what was for him the key issue, that there was an objective reality independent of whoever interacts with whatever. So if particles are potential, if there is no static, objective, cosmic, universal, quantum reality, then what is the truth? Can there be objective truth? So I watched Everything Everywhere All at Once a couple of weeks ago, one of the most amazing films I've seen in a very long time. And I rewatched it again the other day. It's, it's just one of, if not the most incredible film I've ever seen. More friends and family than I can recall having recommended anything have recommended it to me this year after it came out in May 2022. And I finally got around to watching it. I had a strange hunch before gearing up to watch it that it would make for a good springy off topic for a podcast episode. And it's done exactly that. Though I'm only getting around to talking about it in part two of this episode, it has been with us all along, like an alternate reality within this podcast. There, but not quite perceived under the surface. There, but not quite... Stop it, Ree. I'm not going to go into too much detail, as I won't be able to do it any real justice in the form of a podcast. You just need to go and watch it. It's like nothing I've ever seen before. And having a brother-in-law who loathes spoilers, that's him you heard earlier, it's ingrained into me at this point to not spoil anything about a film or a book that I'm talking about if I can. In the film Everything Everywhere All at Once, Spoilers. Michelle Yeoh's character Evelyn is being pulled between a multitude of universes, interacting with many different versions of those close to her, her husband, Waymond, her daughter, Joy, and her father, plus the woman who is threatening to audit her laundry business, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. She also inhabits, accesses the powers of the multiple versions of herself that are out there in the multiverse, depending on what she needs to achieve in the present universe she is in. So, if she needs to become really good at kung fu to fight off an attacker, she accesses a version of herself in a different universe where she's really good at kung fu. Or, if she's unlucky, she instead accesses a version of herself in a universe where everyone has hot dogs for fingers. It's important to say at this point, and in case you missed the first one, again, Spoilers! that the main character Evelyn is being pulled between all these different universes becomes aware of the multiverse because she is first contacted by a different incarnation of her husband, Waymond, from a different universe in the multiverse. There is a sense that the universes are being attacked one by one, and that the multiverse itself is under real threat, and Evelyn's being called upon to save it, basically. So the film could be viewed through the lens that there is one universal truth, and that Evelyn is trying to return to that, or perhaps even combine all the truths of the different universes to create one truth, one truly universal truth, a multi-universal truth. Or you could view it through the lens that there is no such thing as a universal truth. There is only the truth of what's in front of you, what's true in your universe. Anything outside of that universe is not true, cannot be true, because it's not in your universe. And as we know, being humans in the universe on planet Earth, there are multiple truths, infinite truths out there, dependent on where you are, who you're talking to, what's going on, what time in history you're in. So perhaps our universe is very much like the multiverse as presented in Everything Everywhere All at Once. There are multiple versions of ourselves, multiple versions of the truth, and they are all competing with each other to be the one singularly observable truth at any given moment. Or there's the antagonist, Jobu Tupaki's version of events, that every universe is unified by the single idea that everything is basically meaningless. It doesn't matter where you are, what you do, who you are, 
it's all meaningless. And I think that's the most beautiful message of the film, that it portrays in a powerful, compassionate, silly way that we as humans have so many options open to us, that there are so many versions of us that could come into reality, let alone versions of other people, that exist as potential, that are competing every second of every day to be the one that is shown to the world, the one that is true. And the film shows how exhausting, terrifying, overwhelming, but ultimately laugh out loud, ridiculous, silly that is, that even though everything may be meaningless, perhaps even because everything is meaningless, the only answer to beat that, to beat back the deafening, crushing weight of all the possibilities available to us, the sense of meaninglessness in it all, is to be kind, is to meet each moment with love and compassion. So you have within you the potential in this moment to be absolutely anything you want or need to be. And that's not some hippy-dippy nonsense, that's the fact of being alive, I feel. Look, I just did something. What did I just do now? Well, what am I doing? Every single moment is a decision, and that is either a terrifying, existentially overwhelming thought, or an empowering, life-affirming thought. I used to think it was the former, but now I choose the latter. An offshoot theory of the multiverse theory ties in neatly with this, and this is the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. We'll look into this in more depth, but essentially, this theory asserts that it is possible to remove randomness and action at a distance from all quantum mechanics, and thus from all of physics, because the existence of an infinite number of worlds means that all possible actions have happened, are happening, will happen. And if all possible actions are possible, have happened, are happening, and will happen, then any sense of randomness in those actions is just not possible, because all possible outcomes from any action are accounted for. So, you roll a dice and it lands on the number three. And as any fans of the US sitcom community will know, every time you do this you are creating six different timelines. One for each of the numbers on the die. Seven even, in the event that it doesn't land on a number, it lands somehow instead on one of its edges or infinite possible outcomes even. A bird could swoop in and swallow it. It could land in a bowl of soup. The dice could spontaneously combust. We could go on. But in this action where you have rolled a die and it's landed on the number three, this seems random to you. You have embraced the sense of randomness in all actions by throwing something into the air, the outcome of which you have no control over. But according to the many worlds interpretation, there is no such thing as random because there exists a universe where every possible iteration of that action is being mapped out completely. And behind that action, everything that could have led you to the point of rolling the number three, those actions have been mapped out too. And from that action of you rolling the number three, yes, every possible outcome will be mapped out into the future too. Which I think communicates just through the act of rolling a dice, what could have led to that point, what could happen in that moment, and everything that could happen as a direct cause of that, and so on, this shows how many possible worlds there are, how many infinitely possible universes. And the many worlds interpretation says, because those all exist, have existed, will continue to exist, there is no such thing as randomness, because every possible action and outcome is accounted for in one of these worlds. That everything is accounted for, has been accounted for, will be accounted for, everywhere, all at once. There is a counter to this theory, or rather a theory that, in its challenge of the many worlds interpretation, can help explain how there can be no such thing as probability. This is the sleeping pill experiment, which is where you would be given a sleeping pill, placed on a movable bed, fall asleep, and then end up on the movable bed in one of two rooms, room A or room B. When you awake, you would then guess which of the two rooms you were in. So the probability is one in three, 
you are in room A and you guess correctly, or you are in room B and you guess correctly, or you guess the wrong letter of the room that you're in. So, in the theory of there being many worlds, this experiment has created three separate worlds from that one possible beginning. And as an experiment, it presents a possible sense of randomness within what can happen, that the experiment has created a so-called split in reality, with three possible seemingly random options available to you, determined in their randomness by which room you are placed in and which room you think you are in when you awake, though you have no concept of what rooms A or B are, so can only guess with a sense of randomness. But in terms of a quantum interpretation of the experiment, that sense of randomness is meaningless, even though it is meaningful to you, because as it would argue, all outcomes have been realised, have happened, so probability in the normal sense doesn't apply. But as an experiment, it is useful when explaining how probability is essentially an illusion, that all of those possibilities, you waking in room A and saying room A, you waking in room B and saying room B, and you waking in either one and saying the wrong room, all of those are also true somewhere in one of the many worlds. At the same time as you say room A in room B, you are also saying room A in room A and room B in room B. Or perhaps time is like a big long chain, a coil of interconnected moments, and you say room A in room A to be followed some period of time further along the chain to say room B in room A. Though that is a very human understanding of what time is, what time looks like, how time functions, that it is linear chronological, that it is something, someplace, sometime, rather than everything, everywhere, all at once. Which just makes something, someplace, sometime sound like a very lazy remake of everything, everywhere, all at once. I'm not going to see that. Evelyn, you've got to save the something verse. The what verse? I can't be bothered. Now, to make clear the different use of words between the multiverse theory and the many worlds interpretation, I'll quote here the Stanford University Encyclopedia of Philosophy, because I'm all smart-like. The concept of a world in the many worlds interpretation is based on the layman's conception of a world. However, several features are different. Obviously, the definition of the world as everything that exists does not hold in the many worlds interpretation. Everything that exists is the universe, and there is only one universe. The universe incorporates many worlds similar to the one that the layman is familiar with. A layman believes that our present world has a unique past and future. According to the many worlds interpretation, a world defined at some moment of time corresponds to a unique world as a time in the past, but to a multitude of worlds at a time in the future. Now, I feel it's important to observe that, unsurprisingly, given who is leading the charge on these theories, these are all very human-centred ideas of what the world means, how multiple universes might exist and how we might fit within them. If I can, as a human, roll a dice and it lands on the number three, there are multiple other universes where it will land on the number six or the number four, or the dice will lodge in the throat of a passing accountant, or the dice will rebound off the window, land in a plant pot and find the cure for cancer. All of these iterations of reality in other universes within the multiverse are centred around me, a human being. We haven't heard the squirrel's interpretation on the multiverse theory. But then, by the combined logic of the multiverse theory and the many worlds interpretation, if all possible iterations of reality have happened, Therefore, it's not just possible, but mandated by the theory that there must be a universe, multiple universes, even where squirrels are the ruling class. Squirrels experiencing multiple outcomes of the same act of rolling an acorn with numbers one to six scribbled on the sides. Or, as in an unexpectedly moving part of everything everywhere all at once, Spoilers. there may be universes where rocks and stones are all there are. 
humans may be useful in ourselves as the test dummy, as it were, to flesh out our understanding of how this theory might be possible. But by the very nature of the theory, we and all our human stories are just an infinitesimal, infinitesimal part of it. And of course, having a six-sided dice is in itself a very arbitrary, very human concept of probability and chance. Think how many multiple multiverses there would be if there were 666-sided dice. Maybe that's the dice the devil uses and tortures his hellish guests with for eternity in Hades. What number did it land on? Do I still have your soul? I, I can't read it, Satan. The, the letters are so incredibly small on this 666-sided dice. Oh dear. Well, I guess I win again, then. Next. So, the film Everything Everywhere All at Once sort of presents the theory of multiple existences, whether the multiverse theory or the many worlds interpretation, as being one big world, a series of many universes that interrelate and intercommunicate. So, you could be in universe A, where you're a master carpenter, and that is connected to universe B, where you're being crucified on a wooden cross. As far as we can currently deduce, that does not seem to be the case. Because if there are other universes within a black hole, for example, we just can't see into or access a black hole, because to do so would require us to travel faster than the speed of light, and we can't currently do that. Don't think my car does that. But perhaps there are versions of ourselves in other universes other worlds that can travel faster than the speed of light and have come into contact with our world if they are not already among us. Hello. And thinking back to the concept of truth, if the multiverse theory is correct, which version of ourselves is the true one? Is that even a question we need to consider? If there are multiple versions of ourselves, one where we are, say, a lesbian from the island of Lesbos, and one where we are a lesbian with a capital L who lives in Long Island, Aren't both those versions of ourselves true? And both versions also false? Because yes, you are both those things, but you are also not both those things, I guess. Depending on where you define yourself as actually being, where your true state is. In the film Everything Everywhere All At Once, we see a particular Evelyn. She is our lead protagonist, our guide in a world of many worlds all colliding and competing with each other. But is she the real, true Evelyn? Are they all true? The ones that she can access at any different one moment in different universes, are they all true or are they in some ways false? Does one have to be true and the rest false? You know, and if she's not the true one, which ones are the false ones? But if you can be in multiple universes existing as multiple incarnations of yourself, does the question of which is true really matter? The Stanford University Encyclopedia of Philosophy puts it this way, The quantum state of the universe at one time specifies the quantum state at all times. If I am going to perform a quantum experiment with two possible outcomes, such that standard quantum mechanics predicts probability one-third for outcome A and two-third for outcome B, then, according to the many worlds interpretation, both the world with outcome A and the world with outcome B will exist. It is senseless to ask, what is the probability that I will get A instead of B? because I will correspond to both versions of myself, the one who observes A and the other one who observes B. So essentially, you can think about, speculate, pursue the logic of the experiment about whether you in A or you in B is the true you, but by virtue of you existing as A and also as B, both are true by default and false. And when you introduce the concept of time into the mix, it gets even more messy. Say you used to be a bus conductor in London, and now you're the conductor of an orchestra in Sydney. Both versions of yourself are true, though they theoretically contradict each other. 
but they would only contradict each other if they were happening at the same time, in the same place. But as we know from looking into quantum physics in episode B, B is for brains, Einstein's theory of relativity asserts that time is relative. So they are both happening at the same time. You are both a conductor in London and a conductor in Sydney. As Evelyn in Everything Everywhere All at Once is both a Kung Fu martial arts expert and a woman with hot dogs for fingers. Both are true and both are false. One may be true now in the moment you are experiencing as now, but would not have been true 50 years ago. One may be false now by the current standards of truth in the moment you term now, but will be true 50 years from now. So which is it? True or false? In the moment, as we see it on a human level, what is true in the moment termed now, that you're a specialist in conducting particle physics, what a career you've had, that's all that matters, all that can be considered true. But what is the moment? What is now? It could be argued that it's only what's observable and true right at this present moment in time. But again, what is time? Is time entirely non-linear? As Carlo Rovelli writes, special relativity has shown that the notion of the present is also subjective. Physicists and philosophers have come to the conclusion that the idea of a present that is common to the whole universe is an illusion, and that the universe flow of time is a generalization that doesn't work. So if time, now, the present, is subjective, that would mean that potentially it's everything everywhere all at once. So really, as fascinating as this all is, all of this word jumble sciencey soup, how does it relate to gender again? What are you getting at? Well, you could argue that gender as it exists in the universe, let's just forget about other universes for a minute, as wonderful as it is to wonder what other universes' attitudes towards gender might be. Is there a universe where gender doesn't exist? Is there a universe where gender as we've known it, male and female and all that has meant, is completely reversed? Is there a universe where gender is like clothing, something you can put on and take off at will? Hmm. Sorry, I'm getting distracted. Let's forget about all that for a second. In this universe, the universe I'm talking to you in, you could argue that gender is like the multiverse. There are multiple iterations of it out there, all true and valid and active within that universe, and separate from all the other versions of gender that exist within all the other universes. And you could argue that those different gender universes within the gender multiverse are a bit like the plot of everything everywhere all at once, that they are all interconnected, and that there is a fight going on between those universes for the one true expression of gender across the entire multiverse. Yes, you could argue that. I think you see what I'm getting at. There's a scientific rule that is often observed or cited, and this is called Occam's Razor, that's O-C-C-A-M. This is attributed to the 14th century friar William of Occam, and that's O-C-K-H-A-M, just to make it confusing, who stated that if you have two competing theories trying to explain the same phenomenon, you should go with the simplest one. The razor in the title comes from the sense of razor-sharp precision in making your choice about which idea to go with. The logic of this is that the more complex your theory is, the more probabilities there are within that theory that can go wrong, that can be debunked or disproved. The more levels to your theory, if you will. And the more levels you have, all being suspended by probability, the more likely it is that level 12 of 24 in your theory collapses in on itself, and now you can't get from one half of the theory to the other, so it is effectively invalid. So the simpler it is, the less uncertainty there is, the easier it is to prove. You need level 41 to get to level 42, otherwise your theory is invalid. I wonder if the band level 42 had 41 previous incarnations, like prototype levels, before they got to level 42. Level 3 must have been really bad. I'm not even saying anything about level 1. Level 27 might have had something. Anyway, 
I can see how this Occam's razor idea of going with the simplest theory to explain something, how that would work in the field of something like quantum physics, which is already intensely complicated as it is, as we've been finding out in this episode. I mean, I don't know about you, but holding on, holding on with my fingertips for dear life going through all this, this stuff. So simplicity will be a particular blessing here. But if you might try and apply it to gender and think in the terms of going for the simplest explanation, I don't know how helpful that is. So let's be scientific about it. I can do that. Let's set up an experiment. And so these are the basic questions I want to ask behind the main question, the outcome we're looking to determine. Gender is fixed in that you are either a man or a woman, or gender is a spectrum and there are many expressions of this, whether man, woman, non-binary, trans or beyond. Which is the most likely theory? Or as the Occam's razor principle would require us to ask, which is the simplest explanation of gender? So with theory A, that gender is fixed, this is a historically well-established and accepted theory. The theory is that we can observe gender in human society, in the natural world, and that it is not something you can choose or own yourself. It is determined by the circumstances of your birth. With theory B, that gender is a spectrum, this is a more recently proposed theory, though there is evidence across all of human history to support it, in the sense of the different and evolving attitudes towards gender over time that are dependent on place, culture and circumstances, and that the individual is ultimately able to influence their own gender. Now, you might argue from the off that this is an incredibly easy question to answer, as to which is, is the simplest. It's clearly theory A. Not only is it the most long-standing, seemingly most widely and consistently accepted theory, but there are only two probabilities within it. Either gender is fixed, inherent, or it isn't. You take those odds at a casino table, right? But how much would you bet that gender is indeed fixed, inherent? Though the odds are slim, the context of what the bet signifies is incomprehensibly astronomical. You are either saying this system we have is perfectly rational and empirically observable, clearly present and provable, or that it is, it is completely nonsensical and totally unfounded. How much would you bet? A tenner? hundred quid? A million pounds? There's all to gain and all to lose. With theory B, it is that same binary choice, either gender is fixed or it isn't, but with the eventuality that it isn't fixed, there are so many multiple variables of how gender might be expressed. Some we can't even conceive of. You have being cisgender, as well as genderqueer, transgender, agender or non-binary, gender fluid and beyond, so, the Occam Razor principle would argue that this is the most complex of the two theories, the theory with the most levels that could collapse at any minute under the weight of their own improbability, and should therefore be discounted in favour of theory A, that gender is fixed. But is theory A so overly simplistic as to actually be incredibly complicated to actually uphold? By trying to fit people who are in and of themselves incredibly variable and hard to quantify into just one of two categories, are you stretching the laws of what is reasonable to assume as knowable about someone? Plus, you have to be able to exactly quantify what gender is, what man means and what woman means. And as we're finding out in this podcast, that is an incredibly hard thing to do. It's not something you can put under the microscope in with exact precision and expect to see the same results every time. And every time you see a different result, a different expression of gender, that's a level of the theory collapsing in on itself, right? And I would argue it's not just enough to patch it back together and say they're just deluding themselves or it's not possible in nature. And it feels with the passing of time, more and more levels within theory A are collapsing in on themselves. Women are sensitive, men are strong. I'm sorry, the, the staircase on this floor is caved in. 
How do I get to the men's section of the store? Uh, I'm sorry about that, but there was a ceiling collapse. Ah, that would explain why there's glass everywhere. Yes. The men's section is now in the women's section. Ah, finally. Thank you for your help. Arguably, theory B is the simplest of the two theories, as although, like I say, it may be incredibly hard to quantify exactly what gender is, you can at least be comfortable in the knowledge that it is incredibly complex and variable, which is, paradoxically, simpler than saying it is incredibly simple, that it is this or that. It is actually simpler, to my eyes, to say that it isn't simple at all, because you don't have to then try to intensely hard to defend your theory at every turn to cram it into either of the two boxes in theory A. In theory B, there's much more wiggle room. And it's good to wiggle. Wiggling is a very essential part of life. Without wiggling, we wouldn't have life on Earth. We wouldn't have amoebas and bacteria and energies brushing up against each other to stimulate the evolution of existence. Ooh, I'm stimulating the evolution of existence. Look at me go. Always leave room to wiggle. It's a very essential part of life. I would argue wiggling is the most important thing in life. Always leave room to wiggle. And have multiple departments in your department store. Your multiversal, multi-gendered, multi-departmental department store. A men's section. A women's section. A non-binary section. A section that is just a... section. A sectionless section. I love a good paradox. Or is it a bad paradox? Maybe it's both. Sorry, I'll stop. In addition to wiggling, there is the standard model of elementary particles, which, according to CERN's website, everything in the universe is found to be made from a few basic building blocks called fundamental particles, governed by four fundamental forces. The standard model of particle physics has successfully explained almost all experimental results and precisely predicted a wide variety of phenomena. But it is intensely complex, and the standard model cannot account for gravity. It does not fit within its framework alongside the other three basic building blocks, these being electromagnetic, strong and weak forces. The model cannot answer fundamental questions also like what is dark matter, what it is made up of. Dark matter is the name given to the gravitational pull energy that exists around galaxies. We can see its effects, how it impacts on the stars and matters in its gravitational field, but we cannot actually observe it. Despite all this, Carlo Rovelli wonders, and who knows? Perhaps on closer inspection it is not the model that lacks elegance. Perhaps it is we who have not yet learned to look at it from just the right point of view, one which would reveal its hidden simplicity. What may now seem intensely, excessively, impossibly complex may simply be beyond the level of our current understanding, as with looking into black holes. The progress of science and human understanding has proved this over time, time and time again. Looking through Stanford University's Encyclopedia of Philosophy entry again on the Many Worlds Interpretation Theory, I came across a phrase that I feel sums up what fuels this podcast. Episodes like this one, about why we need to really question what we are, the basic essence of things, before we can try and make any comparisons between things, before we can observe why one thing is like this, and one thing is like this, why male is this, or female is that, why gender is this, or gender is that. If we do not ask why we are what we are, and why the world we perceive is what it is, but only how we can explain relations between the events we observe in our world, then the problem of the preferred basis does not arise. We and the concepts of our world define the preferred basis. But if we do ask why we are what we are, we can explain more. And this is why I feel that my most recent ravenous devouring of science around things like relativity, time and quantum mechanics, physics, has felt so neatly paired with looking into gender, questioning it. Because 
Science is ever questioning and expanding our understanding of the universe, exposing false conclusions, limiting ideas. I go back to Carlo Rovelli again. Physics opens windows through which we see far into the distance. What we see does not cease to astonish us. We realize that we are full of prejudices and that our intuitive image of the world is partial, parochial, inadequate. The earth is not flat, it is not stationary. The world continues to change before our eyes as we gradually see it more extensively and more clearly. I mean, that to me sounds like a standard episode of RuPaul's Drag Race. Gender is not flat. Gender is a multiverse within the universe. Gender is a paradox. Gender is quantum. Quantum gender! Science is the willingness to suspend belief in the pursuit of knowledge. I feel the same is true, necessary, for gender. Ravelli compares trusting what is already known, accepted, what is already in front of you only, as being like the presumption of an old man who refuses to believe that the great world outside his village is any different from the one which he's always known. Clearly, this old man's never been to Brighton. And returning to that idea of the multiverse and our exploration of it this week, there are many, many universes outside of that old man's village. And within the gender multiverse, by the logic of the multiverse theories, there is a non-binary universe, there's a male universe. I mean, to be fair, it feels like there's a lot of male universes out there, but... Maybe this is the only one. There is a female universe, there's a gay universe, there's a bi-universe, a pansexual universe. Universes with an expression of gender identity that we can't even conceive of currently in our current universe. You can exist within all of these universes if you want to, if you feel a connection, if you can see yourself within them. In everything, everywhere, all at once, Jobu Tabaki existed in all the universes all at once because she saw through what she felt was an essential lie at the heart of the multiverse that nothing matters, that everything is pointless everywhere all at once. It's just all pointless, meaningless. And in her heart, she was just a queer kid called Joy, Evelyn's daughter, whose girlfriend Evelyn couldn't introduce to her elderly Chinese father, saying instead, this is Becky. She's Joy's very good friend. And Jobu Tabaki journeys through all the universes to find a version of her mother who might convince her otherwise, that there is meaning, and all it takes in the end is Evelyn saying to her father, this is Becky, Joy's girlfriend. Girlfriend. That love and acceptance restored a sense of meaning. Everything, everywhere, all at once. It made that universe the only one that mattered. And I come back to that opening question I asked you. If you are struggling with love and acceptance for who you are, however you identify, do you want to live in their world or do you want to live in yours? As hard as it may sometimes be, when you perhaps have people coming into your world, insisting that you belong in an alternate reality of your world, a different universe in the multiverse of gender, where you're straight or cis, or that you belong in a world where you have hot dogs for fingers, do this. Live in your world. Live in your own private universe within the multiverse of gender, whatever that looks like. And the beautiful thing is, the more you learn to live within it, the bigger it will become, the more closely tailored to you it will be, the more it will become your world, and the happier you will be. I guarantee it. I'm gonna finish with my favorite poem, The Laughing Heart, by poet and author Charles Bukowski. I'll see you next week, Drudgeheads. Until then, much love and all the gender. Your life is your life. Don't let it be clubbed into dank submission. Be on the watch 
There are ways out. There is light. Somewhere. It may not be much light, but it beats the darkness. Be on the watch. The gods will offer you chances. Know them. Take them. You can't beat death, but you can beat death in life sometimes. And the more often you learn to do it, the more light there will be. Your life is your life. Know it while you have it. You are marvelous. The gods wait to delight in you. Drodgecast is a production by Barosh Voices for Drodge. A label without labels. Label verse.